0: Dr. Charney is the founder and medical director of Roundhouse Square Counseling Center in Alexandria. He specializes in anxiety and mood disorders, couples and family therapy, as well as attention deficit disorder in adults. In addition to his regular practice, David has also treated personnel from within the intelligence community and has worked on cases of noted spies, Earl Pitts, Brian Regan, and Robert Hansen, a name you may be familiar with. Dr. Charney was perceived by these insider spies as an understanding and supportive figure which lowered their defensive mindsets and provided a truer picture of their inner lives and motivations. Dr. Charney's work has challenged many common assumptions about spy motivation, and to educate and promote these concepts and ideas, he founded Noir for USA, a nonprofit organization seeking to educate about insider threats. So please welcome Dr. Charney. Thank
1: you. It's good to be here. John Russo actually makes my life a little easier because he handled one of the one issue that I always have to deal with with lay groups and even insiders is the aliveness of spying today. He laid out the threat across a huge dimension of life in the United States. My story today is how to counter insider spies. And because of the great advances in technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, I believe that we can apply all of these concepts to helping protect us from spying, and I'm hoping, uh, because I will be getting into some equations during the course of my talk and some symbolic logic and calculus, that you'll be able to relax, I'm not doing that at all. I don't believe in that. You'll see why, because the way I think of any big problem is that if you can precisely and accurately define the nature of the problem first, then you're 50% of the way to solving it. My experience is kind of unique, and how I got there, I'm not really sure, but I have it now, and I would like to pass along to all of you some of what I learned. Next slide. As John Russo said, spying is a big problem, and I'm agreeing with that. The one thing that he didn't say that I picked up from working with so many people in the IC, the intelligence community, is that even though the detection is regarded as like the summer of everything that everybody wants to be working on, It actually doesn't work very well. Most of the spies, this is what I call a dirty little secret of the intelligence community and counterintelligence, are discovered because somebody from the other side comes over to our side with enough hints and information so that the Bureau can do it, what it's very good at, to figure out exactly who it is. So the way I like to describe it is that some KGB guy in Moscow gets tired of eating borscht every day for lunch. He wants a Big Mac and he's going to come over and he's going to help us find those bad guys on our side. Next slide, please. Now, how did I get to be an expert in this weird area? Well, I was trained as a shrink. I was in the Air Force for two years, one month, three days, 12 hours and seven minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and, but I did have the experience the first year at a SAC base, nuclear weapons, but the second year was here at Andrews Air Force Base, and that way I got a number of cases from NSA, and that kind of puts the interest in me about the whole world of intelligence. And I really wanted to do something in that world after I separated from the Air Force, started up my private practice in Alexandria, Virginia, and I thought, okay, the nearest big agency is CIA. I'll go for that one. Well, I got an application that was about that thick. They wanted to know everything about my mother, my toilet training, went on and on. And I just couldn't do it. I was so busy with starting a practice, I had to put it on the side. Next slide, please. Well, years later, when I set up a larger practice and I was recruiting people, I got a call from somebody when I was all filled out, social worker applicant, and uh, I just had to give her an interview because she dropped a name on me of my best buddy in New York where I went to a residency. She had everything you would want in a social worker, every nice quality, and I said, i got to make room for her at the table. About eight or nine months later, I get a letter from CIA telling me You're approved to get referrals from our medical department. What? What? I didn't apply. And plus, don't they investigate you? (laughs) Mystery. Eventually, I found out that Judy's mother, that social worker I told you about, her mother worked for the CIA. Her mother stood up the first employee assistance program. She knew about me, without my knowing it, put me into the pipeline, and boom, now I'm getting my dream experience of being a consultant to people from CIA. I got to know the CIA very well over about a decade. All the different divisions of it, I thought of them as tribes. Each of these portions of the agency, they're wired very differently from each other. Okay, swell. 10 years go by, I have my immersion into the field of intelligence. Now, bear in mind, I was trained not to ask any questions about classified material. And every patient I saw was also trained, don't talk about anything classified. But you know, you can absorb a whole lot about the culture, the interactions, all kinds of other things in open source when your mind is open to it. So that was cool. And I also hired a number of psychiatrists from the government because they were trained to be psychiatrists, do therapy, but they didn't get a chance in their government jobs to actually conduct that sort of work anymore. They were getting a little rusty, and they wanted to preserve their skills. So they would work for me as a moonlighter, meaning that they would come in the evening and see maybe four or five cases, and that way they'd keep their hand in. Well, one of them was Larry. He worked for the State Department. And uh, he couldn't help but notice that I was doing a lot of CIA stuff. And after a couple of months, he said, David, uh, can we talk? Yeah, Larry? "Um, David, I don't work for the State Department. Oh? I work for CIA. Oh. Well, that was so interesting to have a buddy now that we can sort of chat back and forth about that stuff. Another couple of months goes by. Larry says, David, can I please talk with you? I said, oh, my God, now what? He says, you know, I was playing squash with a friend of mine who was a lawyer over the weekend, and that friend of mine said, Larry, we have this very interesting case that came into our firm. We'd like you to be a consultant on it. Yeah, they told me that it was an FBI special agent who turned out to be a KGB spy. Whoa, Larry said, that is very interesting. But hey, I've got a conflict of interest. I work for the government. I think I know somebody who might be able to help you. That turned out to be me. That was my first spy case. Again, I'm talking about these weird accidents that got me into knowing about all this stuff. Did I want to do that? I was conflicted. Why? Well, when you work in association, let's say, with an intel agency like CIA, you form attachments and loyalties, and the idea of working with somebody who is an enemy of that agency and what it stands for, whoa, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, How much is known about what really drives and motivates spies? Not a whole lot, I could tell from what I knew. And if there was a chance to get to know somebody deeply, that would be unique, special, and it would make possibly a contribution to the national security. And I just felt, okay, I just got to do this. Next slide, please. Now, the problem for government shrinks is that they have limited portfolios of what they can do. Do they come in and talk with these court spies for a little bit? Yeah, they have a checklist and a a little routine questions, but they cannot, they don't have the room to develop a relationship with the spy where's where you get the real knowledge about what makes them tick. And what I did learn along the way is that working for the defense, which is what I had to do to learn about all of what I learned, um, gives you the access. And access is key because nobody can get access to a court spy unless they have special clearances or they work for the defense. Who knew that? I didn't know that at the beginning. I learned that. But anyhow, that's what gave me the access. Next slide, please. And there I'm meeting with Earl Pitts. Wow. I was thinking a lot about what to do with him because when I talked to his attorney, I was getting feelings that there was a real potential for suicide here. He was really a broken guy. And I'm thinking, oh, well, yeah, I deal with that in my office, but how do I do that in a jail cell where I don't have the authority, I can't prescribe really? What am I going to do? And I had the germ of an idea at that point. "Mm, If I could persuade Earl to be open with me and let me know what was in his mind when he crossed that line that that would be a partial atonement for what he had done that was bad if he was open to seeing it in those terms. And I presented it to Earl. And he said, and I quote it there, I'll be your guinea pig. So he was my first spy that I was able to learn about in a very intimate way. Next slide, please. But I didn't stop with one. I could tell you very interesting stories about how I got into my second, third, and fourth spy. I'm not mentioning the fourth one because I really can. But my second one was a notorious spy, Robert Hansen. The, lots of the movies and made-for-TV things. He, he really was bad in the sense that about a dozen people that worked for us within Russia were executed On account of him, so we're not talking about a good guy here. And uh, Brian Regan, I I can mention him. I won't go into the detail there. Next slide, please. Now you know how I did this. I was applying what I knew from my private practice of psychiatry—that the more time that you spend with somebody, you get you get to know them. And I was able to do visits to the jail cells. Which is very hard to, it's very unpleasant to go into a prison. There are uh, metal stores, uh, doors clinging and clanging behind you as you get deeper and deeper into the place. It's it's really suffocating spiritually. But hey, I could get in there, meet with these guys for up to two hours each time and do it once a year quite remarkable, for a whole year, once a week for a whole year. Now, um, what's my secret, which you will not be able to tell from today's talk? What's my secret in my office? I know how to shut up. (laughs) I can be with you and hear your story the way you want to tell it, as long as you want to tell it, until you're done. And if I ask a question, it's kind of soft and open. I'm not an interrogator. And I did that with these guys. Next slide. What did I learn first? Spy is the loneliest person in the world. Think about it. Who is he seeing every day? I'll tell you who. Fellow prisoners, the ones that they are allowed to... Be with, and mostly these are street criminals and so on, not the kind of guys that they are. They will be dealing with the uh the marshals that operate the prison system. They're not the friendliest guys. They will meet with their attorneys now attorneys are different than shrinks on average; they like to talk, and they come in with all this agenda of how they have to work their case and they're pushing a lot of material. And they don't particularly have a whole lot of time to listen. And then along the way, they have meetings for damage assessment, where they sit there in a room with people from the FBI, from counterintelligence, and from the agency that they betrayed on one side of the table and there on the other. And they can look at the eyes of the people across there, and they know they given half a chance those guys would like to leap over the table and strangle you to death. There's no love there at all. That's all they have exposure to of human contact when they're in there. And there I was coming in, sitting down, asking them how they were doing, and shutting up. Oh. And that's how I started to learn more and more about what I needed to know. Next slide, please. Now, hey, if you've heard about all the spy stuff from reading articles and hearing lectures and all that, you always hear about this acronym, MICE, M-I-C-E. And that's an acronym that stands for money. John Russo described all the bucks that are exchanged. That's a no-brainer in a capitalist society. Ideology. That's not so much current, because that's faded in the world, but back in the 30s and the 40s, that was a big deal with communism and so forth, maybe somewhat now with extreme Islamic uh, thinkers, who knows. Compromise. Well, that was mentioned, if if they got your mother in, in, in China is one example, but if they do a honey trap and you had a little thing going with some babe and uh, they have it on on video, okay. Or back in the day, if you were gay and they caught you with, uh, with proof that you had a gay relationship, okay. And finally ego, that's a big thing that they talk about. They talk about narcissism and this and that and the other. And I call that name calling. Because it sounds like you're really understanding somebody, but mm, not so much. Be that as it may. Next slide. I like to say about all these ideas out there, a quote from H.L. Mencken, to every complex problem, there is a simple answer, and it is wrong. (laughs) Because it ain't so simple. Next slide. And how do I frame that so you get it? I talk about the importance of asking why, like a four-year-old. You know how four-year-olds just go on and on with their questions? Next slide. So I give you a, a sample one to see how you'd feel about it. I'll pose a question, and I'll give you an answer, and I'm going to ask you if you're happy with it. There it is. Why do people eat in gourmet restaurants? Answer. Because they're hungry. Uh, Is that sufficiently satisfying you? I hope not. Next slide. So why do people spy? For the money. Uh, Yeah. Because every time a spy is caught by the bureau when they have the mic in front of them, what do they say? He was a greedy bastard. He did it for the money. They say that every time and everybody's mind shuts off. That's it. Okay, we understand it now. Mm-mm. Next slide. Now, taking a sort of a larger view, we keep finding these guys, these spies, and a few women. How do I understand that? I like to think of the bell-shaped curve of life. At one end, there are the people who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Everything goes right for them. They are in a wealthy family. They have siblings that are very sweet and nice, and mom and dad are. are constantly attending your games and all that, and then you go to a private school, and then you get into, uh, you know, Ivy League school, and then you get picked up uh, by a top law school, or whatever, and then into a great firm. There are people at that end of the bell-shaped curve of life. And I hate them. And then there are the people at the other end. And you know them, too. You've seen them in school. At every decision point, whatever comes up, and there's a choice of A or B, where A is right and B is wrong, they go B, right? And everything goes south for them big time. Well, when you have a very large population in an intelligence agency, a big number, isn't it likely, given the spread of the bell shape, there's going to be a few people at that bad end? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And they are the vulnerable ones. Next slide. So I call it Where's Waldo? You know, the ch- children's thing? How are you going to find these people? All right, but that's the job of CI, counterintelligence, to find them. But let's not forget the law of diminishing returns. The more effort that you put in, yeah, you're going to get some, and then you put in double the effort. Will you get double the results? No. And the, you put even more effort, it just starts to be less and less, which is a problem. Next slide. And then what about screening for spies? What are the problems? False negatives being one. That there are some really good ones, and you won't catch them. They'll just go right through the filter. But worse than that, in some ways, are the false positives. The people who are not spies, but your finger to be a spy. Well, I I was honored a couple of years ago to give the memorial speech for a dear friend of mine, Brian Kelly. He taught at IWP. He was a fabulous patriotic, wonderful man, and yet he was the one who was accused of being the spy that Robert Hansen actually was. Oh yeah. And the, the impact on him and his wife and his family, I cannot begin to describe. Now you didn't see it here, those of you who were at IWP, because on average, Brian just held it inside. I spent hours with him hearing about how it affected him because, you know, it's like any you put out your whole life and effort for the United States and you get kicked in the teeth for it. It was awful. But he took the high road, he never sued the government, eventually, obviously, it turned out it was Robert Hansen. And so he was mostly, you know, brought back and he came back into the game, but sadly, I believe he died young because I think the stress of it just burnt him out. So when I talk about false positives, I don't look at this lightly. This is a real problem here and there. So And then the effect on any organization with all kinds of screening stuff that everybody has to go through, it just exhausts people and has a morale impact. Next slide, please. But hey, I am a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist. I went to med school, and I discovered, I'm just so thrilled with myself, I I discovered the genetic marker for spies. Yes, I did. It's the Y chromosome. (laughs) (laughs)
0: 95%
1: of spies, roughly speaking, are men. Okay, hello, that, that's a clue, as John Rousseau says. <laughs> We're talking about male pride and ego is what I figured out. Next slide. And then I put together what I call the core psychology of the insider spy, an intolerable sense of personal failure as privately defined by that person. Now, why did they add the, the last part? Because you can look at somebody and say, all right, You're not an A-team player, but gee, I put you at A-minus or B. I mean, this went well and that went well. That didn't go so well and that went so-so also. doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter at all. It matters what the person thinks inside themselves. How they are defining what they see as success and if they have failed. And if a guy feels that he's failed in his life, in any big ways, it eats at him terribly. It just does. You know, everybody in the audience that are guys, you know that. I know that. And the women here, you know it about your guys. (laughs) It's kind of known, isn't it? And it's worldwide that way. Next slide, please. So we're talking about what happens if somebody, a guy, inside feels like a loser or a failure inside of himself. There's many ways to handle it, obviously. One way is drink. One other way is to have affairs. Uh, There's so many nasty, bad ways to handle it. But there are some, a subset, that take it inside, process it for a bit, and say, no, I'm not the loser, I'm not the failure. It's those bastards that that screwed me over. Them, they messed me over, otherwise I'd be fine. Next slide, please. So now you have a situation of wondering, okay, who's them? And usually them is in the context of somebody's life. Where are they? Who, Who are they working with? Who are they living with? All that. And uh, the apocryphal thing that we all have heard about here in Washington, anyhow, is somebody going postal. You've heard that phrase. And it actually happens that somebody working for the post office at night, you know, for nine or 10 years, stuff happens in his life. And one day he comes in with an AK-47 and he blows away three or four people uh, because that's, those are the people who screwed him and maybe blows himself away, too. That's the context side. And this the psychology of it is projecting outward the inner feeling that you have to yourself, but pushing it outward on somebody else. Next slide, please. So that, when we talk about the intolerable sense of personal failure, when you look at the, Ages of people, a lot of the spies that get recruited are not getting recruited in their early years, but rather after they've had a chance to give life a try and they've run into some trouble and started to feel like they were failures. Next slide. Now, um, gender differences. Men, I've been talking about, you know, men need to be viewed as career successes, good providers by their family. And here's another secret thing. A man can't respect, uh, risk re- losing the respect of his wife. Why is that? She knows everything about him. There's no imagery there. If you cannot conceal from your wife that you're not making it, you have nothing left. So trying to protect against that is very key. Next slide. What about women? Now, I'm overgeneralizing, and I'm sure things keep changing in society. But if you had to list the top things that we all are concerned about, and there's a list of 200 things that we want in our life, the top ones are career, success, and success with personal relationships. And I'm just shooting this out that on average, is all you could say, guys would put the career success first is really important, the top thing, and the relationship number two, but with women, it's reversed. This is only on average. So I point that out to say that if women have had emptiness in their life, they haven't had a loving relationship developed that makes them feel good as a woman, that also creates that vulnerability and a feeling of failure. Next slide, please. And now I wanna talk about profiles because when I talk about understanding those minds of spies to people, they get all glowy, particularly in the IC. Oh, you have a new profile, you know, a checklist that if you just check this and that and that and this other thing that nobody thought of yet, you know, then, then you're good. Oh no, I do not believe in profiles at all. And why is that? Because it's a little bit like a still photo. You can learn a lot from looking even at one still photo. But what I say is, to understand the story, you have to look at them as though it's a movie, a movie that is unfolding over time. The movie can start off real swell, and then some bad thing happens suddenly out of nowhere. And then you recover from that, but oops, another bad thing comes in. Well, all of that is shaping people. It's a dynamic story. It's not a profile. Next slide, please. Well, what I learned to do from all the cases is I put together the idea of the 10 life stages of the insider spy, and that shows how the level of tension and agony inside of a person will change through these different stages. Next slide. And the first stage is sensitizing. It's what everybody thinks about adverse experiences when you are a kid growing up, that you had a father who was an alcoholic and beat you, or a mother that was depressed all the time and unavailable, et cetera, et cetera. And what I like to say is, if those were determinative, 85% of all people in law enforcement, military, and intelligence would have to be let go. Because they've been so damaged when they were kids, you know, forget about it. I don't believe that. And why is that? Because a lot of people in those fields that I've talked about, including where we all are interested in IWP, you have those tough experiences and you deal with it by saying, I'm going to be one of the protectors. I'm going to make sure that other people aren't screwed over like I was." I'm going to be a cop and protect people. I'm going to be a soldier and protect my country. So they take the lemon and they make the lemonade. And that's most people that I've run across. The next stage is different, where stuff starts to pile up on people stress spiral stage. Next slide. That's when life happens. The kind of thing where it's unpredictable, and yet it just hammers you, it, it just hits you from like I just did now. <laughs> you weren't prepared and blam. But imagine big bad things pile up on you, like your spouse has cancer. Your son is caught with drugs, serious money. Your daughter gets pregnant in high school. Name the bad things that can happen to anybody, but what happens if too many of these things pile up on you at too short a period of time? They overlap a lot. I call that a psychological perfect storm, because that can make you feel like you're drowning. I don't care who you are. I've talked to a lot of audiences, tough guys from the intelligence community and so forth, and I, I go into a longer list of some of the bad things that can fall on them at the same time, and I start seeing that they sort of look at me with a smirk, you know, yeah, right, huh? And when I mention the fourth or the fifth or the sixth thing, they're not smirking anymore, because they know people where that's happened. Just a bunch of bad things, you know? Next slide. Well, then, I'm talking about the third stage, crisis, climax, and resolution. Well, what am I talking about there? If you get too much stuff piled up on you, then you start, you're not thinking straight anymore after a while. You want a rescue out of it. You want some brilliant thing that will somehow fix it all quickly, please. And that puts you into a weird state. It's 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 sort of a, a a state of passion, of drowning, of anxiety and panic. That's different if somebody's feeling all those things and they're inside the intelligence community because they have access, and if they have this projection mechanism I mentioned before, uh oh, next slide. So in some cases, some people will have an epiphany okay, I see a way out of this. I could cross the line and, boy, they would really see what a smart dude I am. And plus, they're going to pay me all this and get some of that financial pressure. And plus, my wife will see that I'm you know, doing okay financially. She won't think that I'm a loser. And on and on like that. It's kind of like, Spins up, and it's, I call it a bubble psychology, because you're inside the bubble. You're inside a bubble, and you're not getting logic anymore working. It's more like wishful thinking that's a little psychotic. But then you decide you're going to cross the line. And there's the post-recruitment. Okay, I did this thing. They picked me up. It's not so easy to be picked up, by the way. They're not stupid on the other side. Oh, and, and, and the handler that I have, he's, he's, he thinks I'm... <laughs> I knew I was smart, but, you know, he really appreciates my genius. Um, and you get all this training and your trade craft and what you have to do and all that and the kind of really interesting and fun stuff. Hey, next one. As you might guess, no crisis lasts forever. And then you have the morning after stage. Basically the famous question, what was I thinking? You realize that that was crazy what you did. But you also are realizing that the solution that you figured out is not making a whole lot of sense given what you're coming to understand that you are stuck and trapped. Oh, you could go to your KGB handler and say, you know what, uh, Dimitri, I, I don't know what was in my mind. Yeah, we're good friends and all that, but I just really don't think, oh, right, yeah. Do that for, with the mafia. Don has done you a favor. Is that going to work? No, I don't think so. And you know that, too, so you don't even ask. Next slide. I call this shark in a shark tank. They can swim fine with each other, any shark, but if one again gets and starts to bleed a bit, they will turn on that shark like prey. Okay, you'll do the right thing. You will go to your security department or counterintelligence and say, look, I don't know what was in my mind, I did something stupid, but I want to come clean and I want to, so we can protect against this. And they'll take you in with open arms, won't they? Oh, no, they won't. They will turn on you like prey. Have I met such people? Yes. Are they sad people? Oh, yes. It's a disaster. Is that known in the corridor, in the hallways, where it's not official but people talk? Yes. So what am I saying to you? Once you've crossed the line, you can't get out of it from the KGB handler, and you can't really come clean because it destroys your life. You are stuck, and you start to realize that you are stuck and trapped. Next slide. So you're stuck with your active spy career, and you got to live it somehow, so you just have rationalizations that you know, what I'm doing has a good purpose in the greater scheme of things, and I really can't, you know, there's no way out, actually, so I just gotta keep doing this. But what do you have all the time in your mind? Uncertainty. Now, what do I know is a shrink from my practice? What is the worst mental state for all of us? Oddly enough, while bad news is horrible, and we've all had our share, you get the bad news, you, you, you get swept, you're exhausted, you're terrified, and then after a little bit of time, you you pull yourself together and say, okay, okay, now what do I do? Now what do I do? Uncertainty doesn't give you that role. And you just don't know what to do. You're twisting slowly in the wind. And if you have constant uncertainty, and now and then I'm sure people, even in this audience, have had that experience, let's say, with medical things, Supposing you had a brush with cancer, and they have to do a test on you every month, and the number will tell it's back or it's not back. And you don't know until you have the test. And okay, it's good this time. And you feel great for a day or two, and then you're back to the uncertainty. What will be next month? You know what I'm talking about. Well, that's what a spy has all the time all the time. And why? Because he never knows where the other shoe will drop. He doesn't know when somebody will knock on the door and say, flash a badge at you, you're under arrest. And okay, let's say with Robert Hanson, he was so clever that he concealed his identity even from the KGB, so we thought. And then you know, all this cleverness will somehow protect them. But remember I said, all it takes is somebody from the other side to come over with some clues, and you're toast, even though you did the best you could with your tradecraft. So you have paranoia and uncertainty all the time. Next slide. And what I have over here is just one meeting in Vienna... <laughs> that I I don't know where I found it, but it's an example of the directions that you have to do to get to a certain location for a meet or a drop site. Now look at that. For one meeting, how long does it take to do that? You have to do it after hours if you're a State Department employee, because you're busy with your regular job daytime. That can take you three hours of doing the SDR and doing this and that and the other. It used to be fun, it kind of like reminded you of teenagers' games that you would play in camp, but not when you've done it for the 18th time. Drudgery, exhaustion. Next slide. Let's talk about dormancy stages for a minute. You know, if these spies were like relentless evil players, they would just want to screw our country all the time. Every bit of the time, no matter how long they were doing the spy game. But they don't. Every one of the spies that I've worked with have tried to stop doing what they were doing, technically called dormancy, sometimes for a long time. Even I learned that with Earl Pitts. And why was that? Because they dream of being out of that stuck place. Where's the pride in being stuck in your life? And they hope, as Earl Pitts felt, if he started to give kind of useless information, he told me what he did. He would read Newsweek articles and kind of reword them, stuff that was out in the open press, and hand it in his, his take. And what he was hoping for is that the KGB handlers would say, oh, this guy is not producing. Uh, let's put him on the back burner and, and uh, leave him alone. He's no good anymore. That was the secret wish of somebody who's going dormant and then they're smart enough, the KGB just kind of tug on the leash when it's useful for them, and whoops, you're back in again. Next slide. Pre-arrest stage, I found that so interesting because what I would hear from people later after a spy was caught, that they would have them under surveillance like a camera in the ceiling or something, and they would say, they would observe the spy being kind of stupid and having sloppy, tradecraft and all that, and, uh, you know, what an idiot he is. Uh, really? Is that what's going on? Not really. Why? They're not so stupid. They know what's happening. They know we're onto them, and they kind of really wish to get it over with. So they quit being real tight with their trade craft. But when you start to think of them as stupid assholes, wait a minute, how come? They got away with it right under your noses for 10 years. Huh? That's what I would say. A little bit more complicated. Next slide, please. And then they get arrested. And everything you thought about the spies comes out of their mouth. Uh, Robert Hansen was quoted saying sort of snottily, what took you so long? You know, it's like catching a teenager finally who ran up the odometer when he wasn't supposed to drive last night. You know, that kind of snidiness and surly. So it kind of gives the impression of what their psychology is, narcissistic bastards and so on. Uh-uh, that's not what it is. It's his third big failure in life. The first failure was things that went so well and he couldn't handle his life, and that made him cross the line. And then he discovers that he's stuck and trapped. So he thought he would get freedom, he gets the opposite. The third one is now everybody knows it. He couldn't even be a good spy. He got caught. So he he acts like a snotty teenager. Next slide. But then I learned from my guys is that they change when they're in jail after a while, and they get sadder and wiser, and actually want to help the country, believe it or not. They still feel like they are true, loyal Americans. And I've heard all kinds of observations and advice from all three of them about how things could be done better in terms of catching spies, running intelligence, this and that. But nobody wants to listen to them anymore. Kind of a peculiar final stage. Now. I mentioned the uh, the dilemmas of the insider spy. Failure upon failure, three of them. Being stuck, terrible. And one last thing, convergence of psychology, which is our opportunity. Why? Because it doesn't matter what avenue it took for somebody to cross the line. It could be all kinds of different reasons, but once somebody has crossed the line, They all share the same thoughts and feelings. Again, I will make a reference to cancer diagnosis. Why? It doesn't matter what kind of a life you had before you got the diagnosis, but once you fall into that zone, it could be any other disease or other situations, you share very intensively the same thoughts and feelings that people have this condition. Suddenly, you're you're bonded by that sort of similarity. Well, what, what's the story with a spy? Fear of being caught? Of course. The grinding uncertainty? Yeah, waiting for the other shoe to drop. No matter how good your tradecraft is, not enough protection. Hopeless about the direction of their life, wishing to be out of it somehow magically. Next slide. Those are my 10 stages. Now, catching spies, why is it not working very well? Because I think not enough effort was put into the psychology of what goes into people crossing the line. So if you're always looking for people being greedy, that's all you're looking for. That's easy enough to track, more or less. But you're going to miss out on other things. And you know Washington is wired with Beltway bandits, trying to solve your problem if you're an intelligence agency. And what do they like to do? They like the big, huge technology-based solutions that involve computers and machine learning. Remember, I said that at the beginning. I wasn't going to give you equations. But they will do that when they're making their presentations to government leaders with the kind of promise and and hope that their solution this time is going to solve this for you. That's Washington. They monetize the problem with their technology, and and then the thinking stops. Next slide. And why is that a bad way to go about it? Because if you're not getting them out of their spying, they are deeper and deeper into the arms of the hostile intelligence agencies. And we have worse and worse losses year by year. Next slide, something new. Time for something new. So this is what I came up with. Now, for people that are in the intelligence world here, this is where I give you a trigger warning. You're going to hate me. Because what I'm going to say is going to run so counter to what you have lived with your whole career that it will bother you. And I'm saying, what if there were a way out? a way that a spy could voluntarily turn himself in. A government-sanctioned safe off-ramp exit. Think about it. Next slide. I had to come up with a new word for that because you know what? There's no such a thing that a spy voluntarily turns himself in. Remember I told you how hard it was. I used the word reconciliation. As used for other reasons, but I repurposed it for this situation. And I invented the idea of NOIR. It's an acronym, National Office for Intelligence Reconciliation. It would be a a little unit where somebody could turn himself in reasonably safely and stop spying. Now, here's where you're going to choke on it. As part of the package, there's got to be no jail. And why did I come up with that? Because if I were a spy, I was trying to imagine it, there would be a lot of hits that I'd be willing to absorb to get out of that awful life. But if they said I would go to jail anyhow, I'd say, I'll take my chances. So all the other punishments that you can think of are left on the table. You lose your job, you lose your clearances, you might have to pay fines, you gotta have financial scrutiny for the rest of your life so hidden assets are not accessible. You might have to go into something like the uh, Witness Protection Program to get a new uh, identity because the KGB are nasty players, as you were told about, and so forth. Next slide. Now, what's the spirit of this idea? Because it's a trade-off. Is this out of sympathy and empathy because I'm a shrink and you know I want to be nice to everybody? No. No. Not sweet sentiment. It's only for national security. Because the sooner we stop the spy giving away our precious secrets, the more safe we are. And I sometimes people will ask me questions sometimes they'll Prod me, and I I just want to remind you of scale, the scale of the problem. One spy giving away certain information could result in the destruction of one United States aircraft carrier. There are hundred advanced planes on those carriers, each one of which is worth at least $10 million. The aircraft carrier itself is a trillion dollars. 5,000 lives. What's the trade-off? Are you going to be satisfied that you caught the spy, finally, after 10 or 12 years of spying, because you were lucky because somebody in Moscow wanted a Big Mac burger, and now we're going to give him a life sentence, or at least 20 years. Yep, we did our job. Oh, the, the aircraft carrier went down? Okay, well... You know, things happen. No, the scale of it has got to make you think about stretching to consider other ideas. Next slide. Well, what I described to you, um, you can go to the last slide, which shows my white papers that are in one document. I thought about A safe off-ramp exit for existing spies that cross the line. That was my first big idea. I won't go into all the other reasons why I moved to my next idea, but I'm going to tell it to you just to know that it was there. If there's such a thing as a safe off-ramp exit for somebody who's already crossed the line, why not have a safe off-ramp exit before they cross the line? Which is another way of saying prevention. How much of that is being done in the IC smartly? Not much. It just doesn't happen. And if you look at the bottom of the slide there, when I wrote part three, I call it the missing link. And then I say three things. Counterintelligence is the stepchild of the intelligence community. John Russo mentioned that. Everybody Correctly, he's putting a huge amount of energy into positive intelligence collection. Collection. How much respect and attention goes to CI, counterintelligence? Lip service is given. Actually doing stuff where it really makes a difference? Eh. So it's the stepchild, and everybody knows that. And then I say prevention is the stepchild of counterintelligence. Because all they do is want to find spies, but they don't want to stop it from happening in the first place, I say detection gets all the love. That has to change. So if you want to read more about it, it's easy enough. I put my website there, it's simple, N-O-I-R, that's the name of my concepts basically, for, the number four, USA.org. And you'll have all my material there for you to uh, look at at your leisure. I appreciate your attention, and if there is any time left, I'm willing to take a few questions. No time left. (laughs) All right.
0: (laughs) All right. right.